So let's start describing the functions of the muscular tissue. The muscular tissue is particularly um, uh, different from other tissues and it has the following uh, characteristics that make this tissue unique. It's contractible or contractile. Uh, these cells together, they are able to get shorter in length, they get longer. That's what we call contractility. And these cells of the muscular tissue, they share another characteristic related with contractility, which is we call them, they are excitable or irritable. That means that if we stimulate these cells, the membrane of these cells, they will react. They will react making an action potential, producing an action potential, which is a small amount of electricity generated in the membrane of the muscle uh, cell. Now this action potential, production of electricity, electrical signal, it's something that it is studied with more detail in the next segment 40B when we do nervous system. We'll get to the very detailed molecular level, what happens on the molecular level during this action potential or electrical events. But the muscle cells, they also react whenever a stimulus is applied. The stimulus may be electrical, the stimulus may be mechanical, and even chemical um, or electrical. The muscles, we say they contract, they are extensible or stretchable, they can be stretched, and they are elastic. The difference between um, being extensible or stretchable and elastic is that extensible it's, means that you're able to stretch it, but then elastic, when that muscle cell is able to return to the original length and original shape. So these two things are typical of the muscular cells and the muscular tissue. And in general, the functions of this muscular tissue are anything that is related with movement, create motion, and skeletal muscle, which is named like that because it's attached to, to the skeleton, different bones, main function will be to move different parts of the body. And here is when we see the action of nerves, bones, muscles, and joints to make or produce the body movements of different types. Then another important thing about the muscles is that they are very useful to stabilize the body position. The reason why we keep standing in one position or seated is because the muscles have contractility and they are able to maintain that position even for long periods of time. Sphincters. The term sphincter is related with a ring of muscle cells that is usually around a duct or orifice. And in that sense, the muscles work as sphincters to store substances or to hold different types of products, substances, until the time comes to make it move. In this way, the sphincter may be 
uh, made of skeletal muscle or smooth muscle. We'll see that there are three types of muscles, the skeletal, smooth, and cardiac muscle. And there's a sphincter of skeletal muscle around the urethra, around the anus. There's a sphincter in between the stomach and small intestine. And the function is to regulate the passage of intestinal contents. So that's what we call a sphincter, a ring of muscular cells organized around a duct or an orifice. Peristalsis or peristaltic contractions have to do with smooth muscle. Smooth muscle is a specific type that is present in the walls of the digestive system, intestines, blood vessels, and especially in the digestive system, when the smooth muscle contracts and make the food move along, we call that contraction peristalsis or peristaltic contractions. And the generation of heat is also under the responsibility of the muscles, especially skeletal muscle. This is the reason why we have chills start shaking when we are in cold temperatures to generate heat to balance the body temperature. And we call that thermogenesis. As I said before, there are three main types of muscles or muscular tissue, skeletal muscle, cardiac muscle, and smooth muscle. And here in this table, we have all the summary of the main features of these three types. Let's highlight some of the features so we can differentiate them. First, the location. Cardiac, obviously, is in the heart, the only place where we find it. Skeletal muscle attached to bones. And smooth muscle in viscera or organs, like the gastrointestinal tract, uterus, blood vessels, Organs are, are in the cavities, in the body cavities. Regarding the appearance under the microscope, we have this highlighted in green letters. Skeletal muscle and cardiac muscle are estriated, meaning we can recognize bands running across the cells. Smooth muscle has no estriations, no estriations. We don't see those bands running across the cells. Besides, skeletal muscle is multinucleated. As we see in this drawing, we see a long cell, which is also known as uh, fiber, muscle cell or muscle fiber. We use those terms for skeletal muscle. And it's multinucleated. We can see up to three nuclei in this particular drawing. Cardiac muscle is, has only one nucleus, and we can recognize individual cells. All this, and I'm just drawing the limits, the connections in between cells, and one nucleus in each cell. So that's an important difference. One central nucleus, compared with the skeletal muscle that has many nuclei, and there are long, very long and thick fibers. And finally, the visceral or smooth muscle, no striations and one central nucleus, 
at the same time. Regarding the control, control, two of them are involuntary, the cardiac muscle and the smooth muscle. You cannot move those muscles, um, uh, you cannot control them voluntarily. They just contract under the uh, influence of different parts of the nervous system. It's not completely autonomic, it's still under control of the nervous system, but we are not aware, we are not able to control that voluntarily. The only one that is voluntary is the skeletal muscle. So let's start with the skeletal muscle. At the end, we'll describe some features of the smooth muscle. In cardiac muscle, we do more of cardiac muscle in uh, when we get to the chapter of heart, cardiovascular system. Skeletal muscle, as mentioned, they are very long cells. We also call them muscle fibers because of that. And they can be very long, very long, because what happens during the development of these muscles is that the individual cells, very early in the development, we are still stage of embryo, individual cells get fused, get fused, and that's how they give place to this long fiber with many nuclei, because many cells uh, have fused into only one long fiber, and depending on the length of the muscle. For instance, this muscle called sartorius that we will study is located in the thigh. It's very long. It comes from the iliac anterior superior iliac spine, and it goes all the way down to the tibia. So muscle fibers are that long from attachment to attachment. Skeletal muscles contract under the influence of the nervous system that we control voluntarily. And that means that there's a neuron connected to the muscle fibers. And that's what we show here in this diagram. You can see the origin of the order is in the cerebral cortex. And through, and through the red fibers, you follow the red line, is going down the spinal cord, connects to a second neuron here in the spinal cord. And from the spinal cord, this second neuron will connect to individual muscles and we can move whatever muscle we need to move or want to move for some purpose. If we go deep, uh, close to the muscle fiber, here we see a motor neuron. The yellow part is the axon of that neuron sending connections to the membrane of the muscle fiber. And that membrane of the muscle fiber, it has a name. It is just a cell membrane, it's plasma membrane, but in the case of this muscle cell or muscle fiber, we call it sarcolemma. That is one fiber. So we can find many nuclei here. There's one nucleus here, 
That's another nucleus here. Many nuclei, a long fiber. Now all these long fibers, they have an organization and they are grouped, wrapped in bundles of fibers. And this graph is showing that organization from the unit, which is the one muscle fiber or muscle cell, until we get the whole muscle. So if we start from the single muscle fiber, we have it here, single muscle fiber or muscle cell, that, as well as many others that are right next to it, they are bundled up into a fascicle. So the fascicle contains many muscle fibers. And it's wrapped by a layer of connective tissue called perimysium. Perimysium. Those fascicles, they are grouped and bundled up again by layers of connective tissue. And that layer of connective tissue that is wrapping all this group of fascicles is called epimysium. The epimysium is the one that wraps the whole muscle. Like imagine the biceps. If you open here, open the skin, you will meet the muscle and you will find the muscle wrapped by this membrane of connective tissue called epimysium. And following the epimysium, we see this white membrane here. Since it's connective tissue, it will fuse to the tendon, which is dense regular connective tissue. And the tendon will fuse to the periosteum. And this is the bone attachment of that particular muscle. That's how this is organized. So the muscle fibers, they attach to this membrane that turns into a tendon, and the tendon fuses to the periosteum of the bones. Now in this graph, you have a question? It's the same epimysium. It's the same. It's the same epimysium, yes. That progressively gets thicker and fuses to the tendon. And there is one more term that is not shown here in this graph, but you can see it in other places, and that's called endomysium, which is the innermost. Where? Well, that's the connective tissue that is surrounding the individual muscle fibers. So you see all these individual muscle fibers um, wrapped by endomysium. The perimysium is the one that wraps the group of muscle fibers, but in between the muscle fibers, see these spaces here in between? That's something that, that, that is called endomysium. In some books and atlas you can find that term, endomysium the spaces in between the muscle fibers. Perimysium, the membrane that wraps the fascicle, and epimysium, the band that wraps the whole muscle.
That's how it goes. From innermost to outermost, endomysium, perimysium, epimysium. Now the epimysium, we saw in the graph that it turns into a tendon. And that tendon will connect to the muscle, I mean to the bone. Sometimes this epimysium, it gets thicker, very thick. And that is called fascia. Because it's not, it's not covering only one muscle, it is covering many muscles. Like here in the lower limb, in the thigh, when we start opening and dissecting, moving the skin, peeling the skin, the subcutaneous tissue, the hypodermis, then we reach this, we find this white membrane. But this white membrane is wrapping the whole group of muscles of the thigh with asafascia. And it comes, it derives from the epimysium of individual muscles that get thicker and starts wrapping all the muscles in, the, in this particular region. And that's what they try to represent here as a section. This white patch is showing just a piece of that fascia, which is wrapping all the muscles in the thigh. That particular fascia in the thigh is called fascia lata because it wraps the muscles of the thigh, the quadriceps, which is anterior, and the hamstring muscles, which, is, uh, which are posterior. So it's wrapping all muscles. The purpose of that is to provide support, provide support and increase the leverage for these muscles to contract. Otherwise, you will see all the muscles, since they are very long, hanging to one side, to the other side. And that's what happens when we do dissections of this part. In cadavers, we start removing the skin, then the subcutaneous tissue, then we find the fascia. But in order to see the muscles, we have to open the fascia and start individualizing all the muscles. But then after a dissection of all the muscles, you see the thigh, and you see all the muscles hanging one side and other side, because they're very long, and they lose support. Uh, that's why the fascias wrap and keep them, all the muscles uh, together. It's very tight, it's very tight, very thick, especially in this part of the, uh, the thigh. Also, in the abdominal region, when we start dissecting in the abdominal wall, anterior abdominal wall, we'll see and we'll find this white membrane here. That's a fascia that is wrapping and covering the muscles of the abdominal wall. And then we have to open that fascia to individualize and observe uh, individual muscles there in the abdominal wall. And it depends on the part or region of the body that this fascia may be superficial, or deep, sometimes there are two layers of different fascia depending on uh, the number of muscles or type of muscles in, uh, in some region. Another term that we need to um, review is aponeurosis. Aponeurosis is again, connective tissue, and it's a fascia. It's a fascia that gets even thicker. And sometimes we use the term aponeurosis um, or fascia in the same way. Like when we open some part of the body and we find the muscle, we see the membrane 
the white membrane covering. We say, well, this, that's the aponeurosis. Uh, but what aponeurosis is, is fascia. It's connective tissue. It's just that it's thicker. One example of aponeurosis is found in this muscle called um, occipitofrontalis or epicranius muscle, which is in the head. Occipital frontalis because it has two parts, one in the occipital region and one in the frontal region. But those muscular parts are connected to each other by an aponeurosis or thick fascia, which is the same as connective tissue. It's dense, regular connective tissue. That reminds us of steak, right? section but that's actually how the muscles are organized when you make sections of different upper lower limb you will see this and where is the fascia that I'm talking about well the fascia that I'm talking about is wrapping the whole all muscles and keeping them, them together very tightly and in between each individual muscles there are more Fascia, which will be epimysium, because that's the, the membrane that is wrapping each individual muscle. So each of these is a separate muscle. But all of them are wrapped by the fascia. We can recognize the bone in the center. This is the thigh. And around the muscles of the thigh, different muscles of the thigh. And here... In the central part, we can recognize blood vessels in red artery and blue veins and yellow nerves. There is something called the compartment syndrome, which is a problem that happens in the lower limb or upper limb sometimes, and it's explained by this, the presence of this fascia. Imagine that, for instance, there's an infection of one of these muscles, like this muscle, gets infected by any reason. It gets infected and there's a lot of swelling, collection of pus, bacteria, everything you can think about. So what's going to happen there? It's going to get inflamed, meaning swollen. But since all these muscles are wrapped by this thick fascia, there's not much space there. And so that swelling may start compressing the blood vessels and the circulation is cut. There's no circulation, the blood vessels are being squeezed by this swelling muscle. That's called compartment syndrome. And we see that sometimes in fractures of the femur, when someone breaks the femur and it bleeds inside and the muscle is bleeding, but since there's a fascia around, all the collection of blood remains inside and it starts compressing all the blood vessels. And then after some minutes and hours, uh, the subject starts losing sensation in the leg and the foot and the, the distal part of the lower limb turns uh, blue and with, without sensations. But that means that these blood vessels and nerves are being compressed. And what do we do? Well, this is a heroic measure that sometimes some people do, they just cut here. Cut through the skin. Cut the skin, reach the fascia and cut all along to release the pressure. 
and that's a, a emergency solution until, well, they can fix the problem, drain the blood. And that is explained by the arrangement of the muscles and all this connective tissue around called fascia. Now let's study the skeletal muscle fiber and go into the detail of the cells and uh, how they are arranged. The muscle fiber is a very special cell which have, um, there are some special names that we use uh, for the parts, like the cytoplasm of these cells is called sarcoplasm. Just to make reference to that particular cytoplasm of a muscle fiber, we use this prefix sarco, which means flesh, sarcoplasma. That's the cytoplasm of the muscle fiber. The cytoplasm of the muscle fiber contains proteins that are contractile, and these proteins are arranged in myofibrils. The myofibrils are located in the cytoplasm of the muscle fiber and is the cytoplasm is full of these fibers, I mean, or these uh, proteins or myofibrils. There's no space for anything else, it's just full of that. That is the reason why the nuclei, all these nuclei that we see, they are pushed against the walls of the cell. We can see them outside, the outermost areas of the cytoplasm, because all the cytoplasm is full of myofibrils. Here we see a view of one muscle fiber, and each individual, you see here, myofibril. Each of these cylinders is a myofibril. It's completely full. What else we see around the myofibrils are mitochondria. Mitochondria and in blue, in blue and in orange, we see a network of membranes called sarcoplasmic reticulum, which is endoplasmic reticulum or ER that we study when we study the cell parts. Mitochondria, where, why there are mitochondria here? Lots of energy, lots of ATP are required for the muscles to contract. That is the reason why there's a lot of mitochondria here. So that's uh, one muscle fiber and how it is arranged. We see it again here. And there are some parts that we should identify and in the lab next week we have some models where you can see all these because you cannot see under the microscope. But there are models that will help us to understand how the muscle uh, cells are and the myofibrils are arranged inside. Well, we have mentioned the sarcolemma, which is the plasma membrane, sarcoplasm, the cytoplasm, myofibrils, all these cylinders in the cytoplasm, T-tubules. What are the T-tubules? The T-tubules stands for transverse tubule. And we can see them here in blue in this diagram. T-tubule or transverse tubule. And it's surrounding the myofibers. And they are showing a different color because if you follow them, you can see them that you can see that they are extensions of the sarcoplasm. See it here, sarcoplasm, is, I mean, the, the sarcolemma is here. And then, in the same color blue, you follow here the T-tubules. They are extensions of the sarcolemma. That wraps all the, my, uh, the myofibrils.
Terminal cisterns. Terminal cisterns belong to the sarcoplasmic reticulum, and we can see them here. Terminal cisterns right next to the T-tubule. And those three, one T-tubule and two terminal cisterns on each side of the T-tubule, that's what we call triad. When we study how the muscle contract, we're going to mention all these parts and how they work uh, for the muscle contraction. Well, sarcoplasmic reticulum is ER, or endoplasmic reticulum. And sarcomere is the unit, the functional unit. We'll, we'll go to that now and see, define what is a sarcomere and what is the importance of defining this sarcomere. So what we're doing here is we grab one myofibril, one myofibril to see what are made of. What are they made of? They are made of proteins called filaments. We can see this under the electron microscope. Under the, the compound microscope, the light microscope, we can only see the bands running across. But with the electron microscope, we are able to see the filaments and how this actually is arranged. There are two types of filaments. One type are thick filaments and the other are thin filaments. We increase the size of this to see it better. And we can see the thick filaments and the thin filaments, how these filaments are what makes the myofibril, and they are organized in this way. They make up this cylinder called myofibril. Now, look at the arrangement of the thin filaments and thick filaments. They are overlapping and interlaced like this, like my fingers. Thick filaments and thin filaments. Now, the thin filaments, if you see in the graph, they are connected to this blue zigzag line called Z-disc. And you can see from the left and to the right of the Z-discs, we have thin filaments uh, arising. And they overlap with the thick filaments, and the thick filaments they are attached to this other blue disc, which is called M-line. And so this arrangement makes this possible. So movement of thick filaments and thin filaments in this way, like my fingers are doing now. So there's a sliding of the filaments, and that's why they are interlaced like that. And that's, that's the explanation of the muscular contraction. That's why the muscle is able to get shorter, because they will do this. But it gets stretchable because they do this, thanks to this arrangement of the filaments. What is a sarcomere? The sarcomere is defined, as we see here, as that segment located between two Z-discs. That is the sarcomere. And just arbitrarily, we just define this as the unit of the muscular or the muscle fiber. And we'll see how the sarcomere when the muscle contracts, the sarcomere will get smaller or larger, depending on the state of contraction. That's why it is important to define this segment as sarcomere. Now, going more, even more to the detail, molecular detail of these filaments, here we see thin and thick filaments. In red, the thick filaments, in yellow, the thin filaments. 
and they are made of proteins. See the yellow thin filaments? It's a chain of beads that is intertwined and connected to the Z-disc. And the thick filaments in red, they are like golf clubs, all of them are together, they have like a head. And they are connected to the M line, which looks like, like a chain. And we can see how they are interlaced in this way to allow the sliding of one over the other. Now there are more segments here defined, uh, but the ones that we should focus are these. The I band and the A band. Why? Because the A band is what we will see under the light microscope as a dark band. And the I band, we will see it as a light band of the light microscope. So the study of the muscle fiber, they started with the compound microscope, they defined these bands, and then later when the electro, uh, uh, electron microscope was available, they were able to see actually the molecular, some molecular components and explain better how they were arranged and how they were. We see them here. This is a beautiful photograph of a muscle fiber, or many muscle fibers. We can see nuclei pushed against the walls, against outer mode. We have one, two, three, four fibers. We can see this will be one fiber, the second, the third, and the fourth. And they are long. And if we go to the detail of the bands, you can see this better on your computer. But all this dark band will be the A band. And the light bands will be the I bands. That's why, that's how we define all this. Depends on the quality of the slide, we can see this better uh, under the microscope. Sometimes the preparation is not so good, we cannot see it. We have to play with the light, especially with the compound microscope, in order to see these different estriations made of uh, filaments. And that's what we see under the electron microscope. The A band is a dark band. The I-band is a light band. And in the middle of the I-band, we see the Z-disc, which is a line running across. And we can even see it here. We can see Z-line there. In the middle of the light band, we see a line. That's a Z-line. And that's under the electron microscope. And always think about this myofibril in 3D. This is a cylinder, as we see here. That's what we say, the Z-line, but it's actually a disc. So under a transverse section, you will see it like a, a disc uh, called Z-disc. Now, even more detail, we get to study the myofibrils and these filaments. And these filaments, 
and they are made of proteins proteins that are classified in different types first type is contracted proteins which are the ones that actually interact and allow the contraction regulatory proteins that will switch on and off different uh, places or processes in order to start or stop a contraction and the structural proteins which are the ones that help to stabilize these filaments like we saw the Z line, Z disc, M line well those are the structural proteins they are holding and keeping these filaments in position The thin filaments are made of actin, that's the name of the protein, actin, the thin filaments. And the thick filaments, they are made of a protein called myosin, actin and myosin. Actin thin filaments, myosin thick filaments. And the structural proteins and regulatory proteins. Well, here in this diagram, we can see some of these structurals, like the titan filaments, which are kind of like springs connecting the uh, the Z disc to Z disc. If you follow that titan protein, it goes all the way, stabilizing the the whole structure. Regulatory proteins are even smaller, and they're usually uh, at the level of the thin filament. So this is how the proteins, actin and myosin, look. And uh, this is at the molecular level, so nobody has seen actually this. We tried to resemble or make a model to uh, increase the understanding of the structure. Well, some of these things are seen actually, like the myosin heads, but other small details are not. The thin filaments, they are made of actin, and they look like this, like a chain of beads intertwined like that and the thick filaments like golf clubs all of them together uh, and individual myosin proteins will have heads but since they are all connected it looks like this a myosin tail with heads in that way now we have more details about the actin here the actin or those beads, those beads, they have a site, which you see here in black, called myosin binding sites. Like the sites of a receptor, they are sites for myosin. Actually, for the head of the myosin. Because if we go back to some pictures here, look at this amplification of that you see the myosin heads are touching the beads of the actin and that's why the actin they have sites called myosin binding sites for the heads of the myosin
Well, the battery is dead. Both batteries are dead. So what else we see here? The regulatory proteins, the regulatory proteins, they are actually next to the actin, to those beads, the chain of beads. The regulatory proteins are called troponin and tropomyosin. The tropomyosin is like a long fiber that runs along the, the, the chain of beads of actin. And what it's doing is covering, covering all these myosin binding sites. So all those sites that are supposed to bind the myosin head are covered by the tropomyosin, which is a long fiber running along with this chain of beads. And the troponin in blue here is a set of small globular proteins that work like switch, like a switch that would be on and off allowing contraction or relaxation of the muscle. So imagine the troponin as a switch that starts a contraction. And the tropomyosin, the fiber that is covering the sides, preventing the myosin heads to bind at some moment during relaxation of the muscle. When the switch, which is a troponin, is activated, then that moves and pulls the tropomyosin, which is this long fiber, and tropomyosin moves some microns and exposes all these sites for the myosin heads. And now the myosin heads are right there. The binding site is exposed and the myosin head will attach. What makes the troponin switch on? The presence of calcium. The presence of calcium. If there is calcium in the sarcoplasm, it will bind the troponin and will activate that switch that will pull the tropomyosin and expose the sites for the myosin to bind. That's the importance of calcium. If we don't have calcium, we cannot contract our muscles. You can see more of these mechanism. In purple, we can see these um, spheres, and they represent calcium. When the calcium comes and binds the troponin, that's the activation of the switch that moves the tropomyosin to the side and allows the myosin head to bind here to those beads of the actin with a specific site for the myosin head. Calcium is necessary for the muscular contraction. As a matter of fact, when someone has low levels of calcium in the blood, the muscular contraction is very weak, or sometimes it does not happen. Sometimes newborns, for different reasons, newborns are born with, uh, babies are born with hypocalcemia, we say, because they have low levels of calcium in the blood. And you know when the babies are born, they are all energetic, and they start moving and everything, and crying, and, but these babies, they, are born like completely relaxed and they cannot move at all and they cry very soft and but you inject calcium and they are like those toys that you start to run the batteries or change the batteries and they start moving and 
because of the calcium. And the other way around, if someone has high levels of calcium, we see muscular twitching. The muscles contract too frequently. So calcium is very important for the muscular contraction. And this is what happens. You see the actin filament and the myosin head interacting here. And when the myosin head binds the actin, it will slide. It will actually pull the actin this distance, about 10 nanometers, just 10 nanometers. But you add that up to many myosin heads to all parts of the muscles and more than one muscle at the same time and you have centimeters. And that's why the muscular fibers will get shorter in general. Calcium is necessary, but also ATP. Because when the myosin head attaches to the actin, the myosin head will make this. Will move, will kind of flex or bend. And for that movement, ATP is required. That's, that's an action, that it's work, it needs energy. So in a, an assessment of muscular contraction, we can see the sliding of actin of the actin and myosin. As we see here, the first relaxed muscle, and see the distances, see the condition of the actin and myosin. The size of the sarcomere, which in the first case goes from here to here. That is a relaxed muscle, that's the size of the sarcomere. But then in the second, in B, we see a partially contracted muscle. Now the Z, I mean the sarcomere is shorter. And even more, in the third case, maximal contraction, the sarcomere is even shorter. Because of this, the interlaced filaments will get like this, from here to here. Sarcomere gets shorter, the whole muscle fiber gets shorter. And to the right side, we can see the uh, thickness or width of the I-band, A-band, and the different types or states of contraction. Here we see a, an I-band, it's supposed to be like this, partially contracted like that, and uh, maximal contraction like that. The sarcomere decreases in length. And this is what happens at the molecular level when the myosin heads attach to the actin. And let's review this step by step, starting from number one. We start here. The myosin heads hydrolyze ATP, become reoriented and energized. So we start from here. That's the initial state. You see two myosin heads. They are not connected, not bound to the actin yet. But they have, in the heads, they have an ATP, which has been hydrolyzed. It's turned into ADP plus phosphate, but they are both connected there. It's like cocking a gun, exactly like that. Yes? How this movement? Yeah. Like what makes 
it depends on the length and the state of overlapping. It's very physical. Like, if you are like this, you have a lot to move. But in maximal contraction, you don't have much because there's no more space of overlapping. Here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's a, that depends on the length of the actin filament and uh, how far the myosins will get to the end of the Z discs. When you get to the maximum, it's completely close to the Z disc, you cannot contract the muscles more than that. And actually that's important because that's a, the, 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 the explanation or the basics of stretching. When we stretch our muscles, what we do is improve the length of many muscle fibers so we get ready for maximal contraction. If your muscle is not completely stretched, then your muscular contraction will not be so effective in terms of uh, strength or muscular strength. It depends on the distance. It depends how much space they have. And uh, uh, this has very standard, very standard uh, uh, measurements. So what happens at that point? In number two, the myosin heads bind to the actin because calcium is here present. Calcium is here present and switching the troponin and moving the tropomyosin, exposing the sites for the myosin. So the myosin heads will bind the actin. And this is what we call cross bridge. When the myosin head binds to the actin. So there's a cross bridge right there. And you see that one phosphate is released. This ADP plus phosphate attached to the head of the myosin. Well, one phosphate is released, and this is what we have now. Myosin head bound with molecule of ADP still attached to the head. Now, number three, what happens is that the cross bridges, you see all the myosin attached to the actin, it will rotate or move, it will bend in this way. That's what we call power stroke. So the myosin here from here like this will make this, this movement. We call that a power stroke. And that's thanks to the energy that is released when the ATP is hydrolyzed into ADP and phosphate. Now, after that, we observe that one filament is sliced over the other. Now this, amplify this, we're just describing one or two myosin heads. There are thousands of myosin heads doing this, at the same time doing the same. And then sliding all the thick filament and thin filaments over the other and allowing the muscular contraction. The next step is number four, myosin heads have to be detached from the actin. And for that to happen, energy is required. So one ATP is needed here. And that ATP will bind the head of the myosin and will detach the myosin head from the actin. And we're back at the beginning here. Because that, this ATP will remain here. It will be hydrolyzed now into ADP and, plus, and phosphate 
and we're going again with another cycle. Myosin head will attach to the actin, the ADP and phosphate will be released, power stroke, and the ATP has to come back to detach the myosin head from the actin. This is very well uh, shown in many animations and videos. Later you can do a research uh, looking for some videos and animations, especially they show this very well. I think I have one of those, uh, probably will post as you can see it on the website. And explains all these movements, how the ATPs and ADPs animated, so it's more dynamic and uh, easy to, uh, to see. Now this shows the length tension relationship. What is that? It means that the muscle, the muscle fiber will have an optimal size for contraction. And that depends on the degree of interlacing or overlapping of the fibers, of the, 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 of the uh, filaments, thick and thin filaments. And that is when the sarcomere is about 2.2 microns. And that's when the muscle, if contracts, will give the optimal strength, maximal tension developed. But if the muscle is already contracted, meaning that the sarcomeres are shorter, like 1.8 microns, then the tension developed is not too much because there's not much space for contraction. And in the other way, in the other direction, if the muscle is excessively stretched to the point that the thick and thin filaments barely touch each other, then the contraction is not possible and the tension is almost nothing. That's only happens in overstretching of the muscle. All these experiments are uh, made in the physiology lab, stretching individual muscles, uh, muscle fibers, and to see what is the tension that they develop after these um, uh, changes. And now we've been describing all the mechanisms in the muscle fiber, but nothing of that will happen if there is no initial stimulus. And that initial stimulus comes from the nerves, from the neuron. And that's what we see here, an axon terminal of a neuron connecting to the skeletal muscle fiber. Here we see the connections that are called synaptic end bulbs. And that's how the nerves, the axons of neurons, will stimulate the muscle fibers. Electrical signal that will trigger all the mechanisms that end in the muscular contraction. Questions, comments to this point? Okay, the next part, 